It's February 6, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson from Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here on Huron Street with Rich Mazur, Executive Director of the North Brooklyn Development Corporation and lifelong resident. Hi, Rich. Hi, Acacia. How are you? I feel like a PBS uh, star. <laughs> so you've been a lifelong resident of Greenpoint. Can we start with maybe talking about where you grew up? Um, well, I never grew up, but uh, I came to America in 1950, and we literally came by boat. I was, I'm a post-World War II product, um, and since my godmother's family are the ones that sponsored us to come in from post-World War II Germany, where my parents were slave labor, and I was born in a DP camp, as was my sister. Uh, and it was common in 1950 that a lot of the new immigration uh, were post-World War II displaced persons. <clears throat> and instead of staying in war-torn Europe or going back to the Soviet Union where my mother's brother and sister starved to death in the 30s, uh, you know, everybody sought new opportunities. And life in 1950 was actually uh, quite good in the sense that uh, without speaking a language, uh, without having any money, uh, the economy was good enough where you got a minimum wage job and you could afford to feed your family, rent an apartment, educate your children. We went to parochial schools and nobody, nobody paid a lot of money for anything and everybody took care of each other. It was the feeling of community that started then that actually kept me here because that we came to Greenpoint and I've never left and I could have lived anywhere in the United States that I wanted to. <clears throat> the sample that I will give you is that we, the people that were displaced didn't move here with their families, so they, they created families. If someone was painting their apartment that they just rented, and they used oil-based paint, so you had to get it done quickly. <clears throat> the men would all get together on a Saturday or, or Sunday and start in the morning, and it would be like a barn raising, you know, down in some rural area where everybody chipped in because the paint took longer to dry and it smelled bad and probably inhaled toxic fumes. So it was a, such a community atmosphere that I remember as a child that since everybody came here with nothing, everybody helped each other. Uh, the, everything from painting apartments to, uh, you know, taking care of the kids, you know. We were latchkey kids. My father worked all day. My mother got a job uh, cleaning office buildings. <clears throat> and then she was fortunate to get a job as a seamstress, a member of ILGWU, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, in a commercial laundry, laundry that was right next door to our house. So when I was in grammar school, we would walk home from, for lunch at noon. My mother would feed us because she had, you know, 45 minutes for lunch. And then we'd walk back to school. So we actually got to see my mother during the day. And then she worked till five o'clock at that time. And so we were either alone or with one of the neighbors older kids from three to five. It was 
you know, like right now, the latchkey problem is the kids get into trouble. We didn't really get into a lot of trouble. I don't know why. Uh, and we were in the streets all day, all the time. And and it was it was kind of a purer, poorer but purer. You know, uh, everybody was struggling. Nobody uh, had any pretense. All of the housing was affordable. We were communities surrounded by industry. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting phenomenon because all the tenement housing was in the center. The industry was all along the waterfront. Uh, the nicer housing were, was where the shipbuilders and the uh, owners of the industry built their homes in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, fortunately, that's one of the streets I live on now. Uh, but, and everybody, nobody thought about the fact that they were living in the middle of uh, an industrial wasteland in some cases because it was just so homey, but there was a lot of smoke and things going on. And even as children, we used to hang out and play in the factories because there were uh, things to, there were always scraps of things that you could make stuff out of. We used to go to, we had a million square foot lumber yard, which is the home of uh, Greenpoint Landing right now, which was owned by the Stillmans at the time. And I lived between West Street and Franklin Street on Freeman. And we used to climb over the fence and play in the lumber yards. I mean, it was a vast, it was acres of, of lumber stacked in piles. We had forts, you know, because we, we, we didn't have money. We used to build scooters. You'd get a scrap piece of two by four from the lumber yard. And our old roller skates used to attach to our shoes. You know, that's before your time occasion. And once they got, you know, a little boxed or beaten up, you could use one roller skate to make a scooter. You, you nailed, because the, they separated, you nailed the front to the front of the two by four, the back to the back of the two by four. You nailed a wooden egg carton to the front and you put in some sticks on the sides as handlebars and you built your own scooter. So these were projects. And then you like nailed some bottle caps or something to the front of it to decorate it. I mean, you know, it's being poor makes you creative, I guess. And we played games all day. Our parents, when I was 10 years old, we'd go to DuPont Street Park. And after breakfast, we'd leave the house and come back maybe for lunch and then come back for dinner. We were gone all day. We, It was like that ragtag, you know, with our... Uh, Baseball equipment, we'd play ball all day. Uh, even in the park system, there was a budget in the park system. There was uh, a park house. It's a small house, uh, park. And there were th maybe three staff members. You'd go to the playground part of the park where they had a sprinkler pool in the summer. You, you could borrow from the, from the park house uh, checkers, chess, a ball to play uh, dodgeball with, uh, knock hockey. They had all these games for the kids. 
and we we just had something to do all day. We would and and but then we'd so also explore. We'd roam the streets, roam the waterfront, sneak up. No one had access to the waterfront. Open space was not something that anybody thought we had, they had a right to or whatever because they were so used to just struggling to exist that that people would just say, you know, I, I, I'm too busy working. I don't have time to think about what's destroying our community. That's the 50s and 60s. That's what allowed all of this stuff to happen. The only way we got access as children, we'd climb over a fence. There was a tugboat dock at the end of DuPont Street Park. You'd have to climb over the fence and just hang out to get in waters like attracts humans, animals, birds, whatever. And so it's it's a natural affinity that we have towards, uh, uh, you know, being on the waterfront. Uh, we, we'd walk along Newtown Creek. It was polluted then as it is now, uh, getting better. And we would go to the docks, whether it was at DuPont Street Park, at Huron Street, Noble Street Pier, uh, sneak into factories that... There was even, we had a fur factory uh, that used to, uh, I guess, tan fur. There was scraps of rabbit fur. And there were all kinds of stinks. You know, we smelled plastic all the time because they were across the street from my house on Freeman Street. They were, there was a, a small operation that was coating plastic uh, toys and things with paint. And so we always had the smell of toxins. Who knows if anything was regulated? I went to grammar school across the street from Hart and Company. Two schools were there, St. Cyril Methodius and PS31. And that's where we have the phthalate plume under the ground. So, you know, as I used to say, I've said recently in meetings, I said, I inhaled all this stuff as a child. I said, you know, I said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite rational at this point, but I was supposed to be six foot six and a genius. Instead, I'm five foot six and a comedian. But, you know, so all of the toxins obviously had no ill effect on me, and I don't know whether that's true or not. But, but there were so many strange cancers, things like that. Anyway, so, that, so this is the whole idyllic, it's, it was an idyllic existence with ignorance of uh, what, uh, what the community was getting abused with and the fact that there was no I'm, I'm trying to think if there was any access publicly anywhere for the river or open open space on the waterfront and the answer is zero absolutely zero so now we fast forward the whole waterfront is zoned M3, meaning you can put a nuclear power plant there if you want to. Uh, and, and we're used to factories surrounding us. Uh, the American economy deteriorates in the 60s and 70s because even though we were the only industrial power in 1950 at the end of the war, uh, by, the, by the time, and we helped uh, the rest of the world recover, Western Europe, uh, Japan, and everybody else, so that their industrial facilities were 10 times more modern than ours. Ours were some 
in some cases turn of the century, take domino sugar and, and others, and they were, you know, industrial historic sites, but not efficient. Then we were shifting from a, an industrial economy because we started exporting manufacturing and became a, a service economy. And once we got into more computers and things like that, uh, we were more on the software, uh, biotechnology, whatever. But the brick and mortar stuff was all disappearing. So the whole waterfront was abandoned. Uh, I remember being at a meeting once with uh, uh, city planning. And I said, you know, you'd, you'd do well since, since the whole waterfront is uh, abandoned. I said, and city planning is a misnomer. You do not plan anything. I said, Paris has a waterfront that was planned and paid for by the federal government. It's a real design. Canary Wharf was a real design where they had, you know, everything from, uh, I guess, even a Ferris wheel and all kinds of other stuff. I said, city planning in New York was a defense mechanism for economic development. Um, and I told city planning, I said, if you were smart, this land is all very cheap because nobody wants it because there's no industry that you would spend whatever in the city budget. You could have bought the whole waterfront along Greenpoint and Williamsburg for $100 million because the site that we're going to talk about, uh, which was the Greenpoint Terminal Market, cost $25 million, all right? And that was what the uh, payment was to the Goldmans uh, or uh, to propose a power plant. You could have bought the Morris Bailey site from, this is the Kent Avenue waterfront from uh, North 14th, North 12th Street, let's say to North 8th Street which was in bankruptcy at the time, you could have bought the note from the uh, bank for $2 million in 1990, about 1991. So you could have owned four blocks of the waterfront where Bushwick Inlet Park is now for $2 million and, uh, and city storage's uh, ownership of that just got $180 million uh, for the same, for less for one block. Uh, and, and so I said, look, because then you could create a plan. You own all of the land. And my first statement was, then you could rezone it residential and public space. I said, think about it. You could design beautiful parkland and, and have ferries that come across to Greenpoint. And so that the, and I could, I envisioned boutique uh, like hotels, you know, three stories with surrounding uh, flora and fauna so that the hustle and bustle was Manhattan. You went there for the Broadway shows and the entertainment, and then you take a, a peaceful ferry ride across the East River to the boutique uh, kind of rustic space on the waterfront, and then you, and then you open your 
window and you look out at the most spectacular uh, waterfront view in the world. Everybody reveres their views. And that was the other thing that city planning had not, none of. They had no vision, literally or figuratively. They had never stepped foot on that edge of the waterfront to look at the skyline that was across the way, which was probably one of the most uh, revered and, and known skylines in the world. You know, maybe Paris and whatever, and some others. And, and of course, the answer was, well, we don't do that, Rich. That's not our, you know, mandate. And the first, and later on in 2003, when, uh, when a friend of uh, the mayor's who owned, who bought the land from the Stillmans for the lumber yard, uh, said, hey, you know, because uh, Park Tower Realty, you know, his headquarters was, I think, Park Avenue and I don't know whether it was 49th Street, something like that. And they owned the building. And you know who else was headquartered there? Bloomberg LLC. Did you ever hear of them? So the way I envisioned the story went would be, hey, Mike, I own this land in Greenpoint uh, that used to be a lumberyard. And I'm thinking of, you know, obviously I bought it to develop into housing, but it's zoned industrial. Do you think I could get a spot zoning and, you know, build some skyscrapers or whatever luxury housing on there? And the answer was, George, don't even worry about that. What we're going to do is rezone the whole waterfront. They show up and say, oh, here's our rezoning plan. My first question is, where's the affordable housing in the open space? And they had some open space, not enough. And they said, oh, affordable housing. No, this is, we don't talk about that because uh, rezoning is an economic development tool. And that's all they thought about it. And that's kind of the second uh, generation of the guap organizers because uh, when the Goldmans sold the land or put an, gave the option for the land to Con Ed and Keyspan to build an 1100 megawatt power plant. It was predestined, meaning that it, they were allowed to do it because of Article 10, a state, state law that said if it's M3, you can use it for whatever you want. And it was such a, an attack on our existence in the community that, that we, we were put upon for so long and our awareness was finally coming to fruition. We had, you know, all of a sudden there were people that had more leisure time and, and didn't have to struggle to, to feed their families and work and whatever. And, uh, and we obviously became aware of Newtown Creek and all of the pollution. And we had the most waste transfer stations. We had nuclear waste at uh, 
on one one side. We had a, a, an incinerator. We had a sewage treatment plant that was on the fritz that, that they were fixing. So we had stench, pollution, poison, and the straw that broke the camel's back was to say, oh, we're the state, we're going to allow uh, a, an, an electric power plant to be built on the edge of an historic district, uh, the most beautiful part of Greenpoint. And, and it was the only time that I've seen a common enemy that actually brought pretty much every single resident of Greenpoint and even you know the businesses together in one shot. And the mobilization was amazing. People, because I was fortunately out of work at the time. I had just finished working for a company that went bankrupt which is why I finished. <clears throat> so I was out of a job and hugely depressed. What brought me out of the depression was working with the community. It was basically, I, I had a purpose in life. And so the, the purpose was this cause, which just came up in 2001. Uh, and everybody agreed that it was a horrible thing that was about to happen to us. People on the street would say, but Rich, why are you bothering? They can do this. They're allowed to do it by law. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. I said, well, maybe. But I said, if we don't try, then we have failed. I said, up until now, everybody's allowed everything to happen to them because that's just the way it is. Whether it was Pete McGinnis uh, or whoever the uh, you know pow political powers that be at the time were that sold out the community to whomever, and because nobody ever paid attention. So now we're paying attention. We start having meetings in church uh, halls, St. Anthony's. All of a sudden, you know, you couldn't get 50 people at a public meeting normally, or like the uh, uh, Civic, Greenpoint Civic Council would meet once a month and 12 people would show up. All of a sudden, we have 200 people in a room because now we're gathering, uh, you know, and, I, and I'd say the core group, I mean, I, I, was, on, I was working on a project with a, my friend Mark Rostelevsky. We were working on a software project. And uh, and he said, we've got to make, make this an alliance of everybody. <clears throat> so we need to put together as many groups to sign on as possible. We created the name Greenpoint Williamsburg Against the Power Plant, GWAP, created a website, uh, which was the early days of everything. And fortunately, Mark uh, ran a software company. And we called everybody. I mean, we had people sign on to our coalition that was like the Polish choir. Every church, every religion, <clears throat> every pastor, every, 
I don't know if every, maybe every store owner. Uh, so whether it was uh, the Greenpoint Civic Council, the, you know, it would have been the YMCA, it would have been, you know, uh, St. Anthony's, St. Cyril's. I remember we'd have meetings of 200, 300 people. Uh, I remember the pastor of St. Anthony's, Father Chuck, who was also on the board of uh, North Brooklyn, and so was Mark Horoshlovsky on our, on our board. And the people we chose for our board were people that actually uh, cared for our mission. The mission for what North Brooklyn does is very simple. It's improve the quality of life for everybody who lives and works in Greenpoint. And that encompasses anything you can imagine. So if somebody's polluting me, I'm go we're going to attack it. If somebody needs a job, we're going to try to find you a job. If somebody's getting evicted, the first people we help are old ladies because they, you know, they can't afford to live here. If the children need daycare because the parents are too poor to pay for a babysitter, we we create we find money for after school programs. So now, here's Con Ed and Keyspan. Thank God they were a known entity because it's easy to attack a corporation because they react to publicity. So once we got, uh, once we coalesced the uh, core team of, of GWAP advisory boards or whatever, you know, it was Adam Perlmutter who lived across the street from me. We used to sit there on my deck and, and say, okay, what are we going, what are we going to do today? We'll let, we're going to have a meeting. What, what's our plan? We're going to protest here. We actually showed up at 23rd Street or wherever Conrad's uh, uh, headquarters were. We had artists. Uh, we had marketers. We would all show up in meetings where somebody would say, okay, I'm gonna, we're going to think up some slogans for T-shirts that we're going to have manufactured. We got people donating stuff. You know, like we had... Uh, one t-shirt said, it's a con, Ed. You know, that this whole thing, uh, so we had scientific research, uh, legal research, you know, Adam Perlmutter wrote a white paper on, you know, why we should fight this. We, we formed the, we, we actually, I had never seen grassroots organizing like that in my life, and I'd been a community activist an organizer since uh, since childhood. It's just something, I don't know. Uh, when when you when you're given a gift of uh, being able to come to America and live a, a life where you can do whatever you want, you you kind of jump in and participate in the system. You know what I never understood was you know people that were third fourth generation Americans said I don't vote I don't bother. Same people that said, oh, why even bother protesting this power plant? You're not going to win because the powers that be, uh, uh, all, you know, they, they can do whatever they want. You know, once you give up, you're dead. You know, if, if you don't even try, uh, if you never made the attempt, then you have to live with the result. We could... And we could not live with the result. We organized block by block. I had never seen anything like it in my life. You know, I had been uh, running, you know, helping with campaigns 
uh, for pretty much Democratic candidates because, uh, and it's because and, I would have been an independent because I believe politicians always try to perpetuate their own existence. Uh, but uh, I figured out that the only way I could make a difference is to actually uh, participate politically uh, because you have to know them to get the money from them for the programs for the community. So I'm a uh, mercenary for Greenpoint. You know, I will sweet talk you. I will tell you anything you want to hear. Just give me money for my children, money for my seniors, uh, fix my environment, uh, you know, do whatever you want. So we had meetings of 200, 300. We had a candlelight procession from a meeting that we held at the Polish National Home, which is the Warsaw. And this is where Mark and I came in because we're both board members over there. So we needed a centralized spot for community meetings. And uh, kind of halfway between Greenpoint and Williamsburg is Driggs Avenue. And so we had a rally at Warsaw and a candlelight march where 900 people marched from Driggs Avenue and Eckford Street to the site of the power plant at Greenpoint Avenue and West Street. We had rabbis, mullahs, priests, ministers. We did prayers. We did speeches. I remember Father Chuck from St. Anthony's making a speech at the rally at the Warsaw, at the Polish home, in Spanish and English. We had every ethnicity, every religion, every walk of life agree that this common enemy could not exist. By the time we finished with our public relations campaign uh, and, and we protested at the, in front of headquarters, we got publicity uh, that you couldn't buy because there were so many great professionals in Greenpoint. If you ever wanted to mobilize a talent, this is like the movie Holiday Inn where it's, uh, somebody says, oh, hey, let's do a Broadway show. And, oh, I know how to build sets. I know how to do this. Somebody knew how to do everything. When we had a meeting with, with uh, you know, uh, artists that designed t-shirts, posters, flyers, and everybody came out with, I, I, I had never experienced such cohesion of a community for a single purpose. And, and to this day, you know, I, I get chills up and, up and down my, my arms from the thought that this, this was the perfect moment in time uh, because somehow we we found the Achilles heel of the system. And even though legally they were allowed to build the plant, uh, the, the power of the people, strangely enough, beat this project down within six months because they were a public entity and couldn't take the heat and the embarrassment. And it'll never happen that way again. These are moments in time. 
it, it'll, we still, we learned the lesson from there that you never give up because the next power plant proposal, which was the Morris Bailey site, and Adam uh, uh, Victor. Victor, in fact, his, ch his chief of project manager for the power plant on that site was Alexander Solzhenitsyn's son. And he and I were in a page six New York Post battle because I would say things like your father's rolling over in his grave uh, thinking about what you're doing to destroy the, the community uh, because, you know, you want to put us in the gulag. And he and I actually got along really well uh, because ultimately to beat that power plant took 10 or 12 years. So we knew it was possible, but, but you, you could never give up. So you could even sometimes, you know, it's, it's kind of like the struggle for, you know, freedom. Mandela was in prison, you know. You, you ne if you never give up, you, you eventually succeed. So, the, you know, the Guap power plant struggle succeeded too quickly, but it showed us that if you have a just cause uh, and if you do the right thing, the right thing can ultimately happen. And then we converted from Greenpoint, Williamsburg against the power plant, and we said we can't, uh, disperse this coalition that we created you know now that we have the Justice League of the Americas you know and we have Spider-Man and Batman and Superman and you know all of these small people became superheroes you know they, they coalesced and created something so, so we said we're going to keep this going and now our focus is that waterfront and we have to have a positive name because anti names, you know, don't feel right. So what's our, you know, pro uh, quality living cause? So we said we're going to keep the same letters, and somehow we came with came up with the Greenpoint Waterfront Association for Parks and Planning, and and we actually because of our reputation got a good name in, 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 in the city and in environmental circles. And they, we had, you know, the Guap website, which had, you know, papers on everything from Newtown Creek and, uh, and the next power plant fight. So we became the center for, uh, let's call it open space environmental issues for Greenpoint. <clears throat> and we also always cooperated with uh, the Hudson River Project, uh, you know, every, people of like minds, which are obviously sane people, because who doesn't want to live and breathe fresh air and, and clean air and live in, in a non-toxic environment um, and because, for example, now even NAG, and we're always close to NAG, and 
and Nag's existence started uh, against something because their case was waste transfer stations or garbage, private garbage dumps on the waterfront. And so NAG, the original acronym was Neighbors Against Garbage. Now it's the North Brooklyn Neighbors, of which we're all members. And so it, because uh, there's always unity in, in, in strength and and it's not as if Greenpoint and Williamsburg are uh, opposing factions. Uh, we have actually joined together for common cause and and people of like minds because, uh, and I don't know who, who's for pollution or destroying your body or, or the world, uh, you know. You know, it's, uh, you know, every day is Earth Day for me. Uh, because the, uh, you know, if you're not aware of, uh, of, of what's trying to destroy you, then you'll never change it. Uh, and so, so the, so the Guap history is something that should be remembered forever. Maybe we'll do a movie. I, I, I'm trying to think of who I'd get to play my part, but, oh, I don't know, Paul Newman's dead. Uh, <laughs> Keep thinking on it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, it's and it's funny, but and and everybody, even people that uh, maybe didn't like each other on a daily basis, got together and we loved each other for this project. We had uh, engineers, lawyers, some people. I remember Joe Vance, the architect, because he was, you know, there. There were, uh, as I said, you know. We would speak every day. It was almost like we forgot about our jobs. I remember Joe Vance saying to me, he said, I almost went bankrupt. I spent so much time on this stuff. I said, I, and I can understand it. It's because you can't, you can't lose focus. You can't lose sight of the mission. If you lose sight, then, then, you, then you fail. And it's kind of like you, when you're in a battle for your life, you know, you have no choice. And that's how it works. And it's pure joy. You, you, I've never seen that much happen. Kids, children. We had the kids wearing T-shirts. Everybody was, you know, we had chants. We had, you know. Um, I, we, I believe we probably even sang at the candlelight vigil. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a spirit. It was a religious experience seeing everybody gathered together as one uh, and and actually win a fight. And we could do, you know, we could do it again. It shows you that uh, for the right reasons, uh, you can actually join forces and, and succeed against, you know, obviously this is not the... Uh, Genghis Khan attacking, you know, the gates or whatever. But it was a life or death situation in our minds. They crossed the Rubicon, the East River, and they were going to attack us, and we weren't going to let it happen, and it, and it didn't happen. And nobody, so now nobody, everybody's afraid of us. They know what we can do. I mean, it's kind of, 
uh, even even my core group on Milton Street. I'm going to tell you that the people that I that I worked with and grew up with on Milton Street over those years, uh, whether it's Teresa Toro, Adam Perlmutter, uh, may she rest in peace, Christine Zulinek, who you know th these are the people that volunteer at the homeless shelters that uh, fight all the good community fights, that fight the, uh, <laughs> Ralph Carl is the nemesis of the, you know, movie industry, you know, because you're affecting our quality of life. And so we have the Milton Street Block Association. <laughs> and and I, I remember one time Nag had a gala, one of their first galas, and three honorees were all from Milton Street. You know, and no, I mean, we had everybody. Noble Street, Huron Street, the Huron Street Block Association was formed at, during this whole fight because Adam Perlmutter and his wife, at the time Barbara McGlamory moved to Huron Street. So Barbara and I formed the Huron Street Block Association because the best grassroots formation that I know is block by block captains. <clears throat> That's how they used to organized political campaigns <clears throat> at the turn of the century where everybody had a block captain. The political power would give you the beer money to give all the people to vote. We'll buy beers for if you vote, I'll buy you beer. And that's how it worked. And the block captains ran the show and then there was doling out of favors. We did this without any doling out of favors. Uh, we did this you know, just to uh, save our world. And, and is Greenpoint like Beverly Hills or, you know, it's still this industrial borders, tenements in the middle, changing dramatically. So now we've got these high-rise, ugly buildings in the middle of, <coughs> you know, you know, I kind of like the old tenement look and the kids running around in the streets. Oh, no traffic, by the way. No traffic. We sometimes wouldn't see a car coming down Freeman uh, Street between West and Franklin for six or seven hours. We could play punch ball on the street, slap ball. I know you, well, I'll teach you those games one of these days. Teresa Toro and I, wanted to have like a uh, Brooklyn day and she grew up in uh, a neighborhood on the border of, and her mother ran a similar organization in North Brooklyn, <clears throat> developed affordable housing. Teresa Torn and I, even though she's much younger than I am, uh, we talked about doing a Brooklyn Games Day. Games children used to play 40, 50 years ago. <coughs> that people have forgotten about and you didn't take much you know there was games with bottle caps on the street you paint a uh, a skillsy court I'm not going to explain it to you now you, you, you actually paint bases to play slap ball you just need to buy one pink ball which correctly s spelled as spalding but the Brooklyn word is the best ball you could get at the time was a Spaulding. So, hey, oh no, the Spaulding crossed the quarter. What are we going to do? If you lost the ball, you lost the game. 
you know, if you if you punch the ball over the roof or something, or hit the ball, stick ball. So we're, we'll do that, you know, while, while we're still functional, we want to get into the archives because there's a, a great scene that was filmed in the 50s of, uh, uh, who was it, Willie Mays playing stickball in the Bronx with the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, even the old Brooklyn Dodgers used to live in the neighborhood. So, you know, again, we're not going to bring it back to that. I want people to, Greenpoint is my small town in the big city. And I invite everybody that's moved in here to become part of the small town, participate, talk to each other. I talk to 20 new people every day and welcome them to my village. Well, Rich, as the unofficial mayor of Greenpoint, I thank you for your story and for all the work that you've done in our community. Thanks so much. It's, it's pure joy. <laughs>